been through the first um, the first set of the we had the seven seals right one seal after another opened up and we saw these things happening and as I said the uh, the interpretation of, of, um, of the book of Revelation that I'm working with um, assumes a pattern of three sets of seven that repeat okay so what we're seeing is first we see it in the heavenly throne room or where the heavenly worships going on we see those judgments now we're going to see them played on the earth Okay, so the same, we've had these parallel realities going on. We know worship's going on on the earth, worship's going on in heaven, well, um, and we have the words of scripture that the, uh, the earthly temple is but a copy of the heavenly one. Um, we have that in the book of Hebrews. And so now what we have is this, these parallel levels going on. So, but I am going to talk a little bit before we go on about futuristic interpretations. Um, most uh, the, the popular interpretations of the book of Revelation are all futuristic okay and um, futuristic interpreters uh, look for uh, one-to-one correspondence between imagery and historical events okay so this will be almost all the interpretations you see in popular culture um, and it's been done throughout Christian history Various people have gone to the book of Revelation and Ezekiel and Daniel and all the relevant texts um, and seen uh, that the world was coming to an end and they were pretty sure they had the one-to-one correspondence between what they saw in the book of Revelation and something that was actually going on. Um, Our own dear Martin Luther did this. uh, he uh, he was convinced when he talked about the Pope being the Antichrist, he didn't mean any Pope and Popes in general. Okay, he looked at me. He he was a relatively um, he was a very faithful Roman Catholic at the beginning of his ministry, and he saw the the official title of the Pope is you know the the Vicar of Christ or uh, the the Bishop of the Bishops of the Church. So he's the you know he's the highest ranking Bishop, and and Luther had. Luther knew how to take orders in a chain of command. He was an Augustinian monk. He'd been under obedience for years. Um, it wasn't popes in general he had a problem with. It was that pope in particular. He was convinced that that pope in particular was the Antichrist um, por- you know, predicted by the scriptures, <laughs> predicted later in the book of Revelation. Um, so, um, Luther, when, when we read like the, on, the primi- on, the, on the, power, the primacy and power of the papacy, which is one of Luther's major, major essays, he will just tear the Pope to pieces. But he's not tearing Popes in general to pieces. He thought there were good Popes. He, he had a, I mean, Gregory is one of the great doctors of the church in the 6th century. I can't remember now. No, it's Gregory the Sixth. He might be, might have been the sixth century. He might have been the five hundreds too. I'm not sure. Five hundred or the fourth, four hundreds. I can't remember which. Um, in any event, uh, the 
you have the, these other popes who everyone agreed were good, and then you had the Borgia popes in the middle of, of in the Middle Ages, and they were horrible. I mean, they they'd give Stalin a run for his money on most vicious people, people ever in in a position of power. Some of them were really bad. Um, so he knew there were good popes and bad popes, but he was convinced that this one particular pope was the Antichrist because of some of the things he was insisting be be taught in the church. Okay, so. Um, we saw a lot of this. Um, I don't know the details. I've, I've not memorized them, I should say. I've, I remember reading about them. But back when the year 1000 was coming around, you guys remember the Y2K phenomenon? It's been almost 20 years now. Everyone started freaking out. Y2K, it's all going to end. Every computer's going to crash. Blah, blah, blah. It was all this stuff. Um, well, that was the... Uh, when the year 1000 was rolling around, they did the exact same thing. Uh, everyone was convinced the world was going to come to an end, and they would go to the scriptures and try to find one-to-one correspondences between, you know, oh, well, here we see the two prophets. Well, you know, over in France, there's been these two really good preachers. That must have been what that was about. And they would, you know, they would go one-to-one trying to find things in the scriptures to prove that we were indeed in the end times right now. Okay, so nothing new under the sun. Um, so, uh, futuristic interpretations um, also uh, go with the idea that. Oh, and here, here's what we go, here's something I want to lift up for you: is that any interpretation, what we say about the last things, must square with the whole of Scripture and not just make sense of selected passages. So, whenever you'll see, here's here's the way we know it's really the end times. Now, they're going to string together five or six passages usually stretching across all of Scripture. But you can't just make sense of particular passages that seem to connect to that the one you're trying to prove from. You need the whole picture of Scripture to be brought in. Um, and uh, that's, that's where I think that futuristic interpretations tend to fall off the map. Okay, um, We're going to talk more about that. Um, one of the reasons why um, I don't agree with futuristic interpretations, again, dealing with the whole of Scripture. Um, first, we're going to go to um, this passage. Um, this is uh, Matthew 24, 30, uh, 36 and on. Um, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Now, everyone knows this passage. Um, In particular, this is one of the passages cited to prove the rapture. Okay. Um, but when, usually when people are dealing with that kind of futuristic interpretation, I shouldn't say usually, often, when, when they're dealing with that kind of futuristic interpretation or that what's called a dispensational interpretation, they're trying to show, well, we really know it's coming now. It's time to get ready. And by the way, send a donation to our, to our cause so we could spread the word faster, okay? And th- that usually goes together. We have to get more people on the heaven train, so we want to get, you know, y- we really need your money now because we know the end times are coming, okay? We know we're almost there. Well, it's interesting. 
when you look at this passage, um, I, and I put some sections in italics here, um, because this is where Jesus is explaining the meaning of the middle. He's, he's making it very clear, right? Uh, so concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. Now, oftentimes people will say, well, you know, that was for then. Jesus was teaching them before the resurrection. After the resurrection, now we can know the time. Okay? Um, so that's, there's various ways people get at that and say, well, Jesus didn't want anyone to know before the resurrection, but after the resurrection, now God's given us the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, Jesus said the Holy Spirit would lead us into all truth. Um, this is the new truth that's coming forward now. Okay? I can't go there with those people, and here's why. The last sentence. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Jesus' whole purpose in telling this little story is to say, you can't know when it's going to happen, so be ready all the time. (laughs) So it never makes sense to me to try and come up with, now we know it's really time, (laughs) you know? Um, and I, I think I've quoted, I'm sure I've quoted it before, but I, I love that when Luther was asked, even though he did believe that and he did think the Pope was the Antichrist, um, when he was asked what he would do on the, uh, if he knew the world was going to end tomorrow, his answer was, I'd plant an apple tree. And it was, a, it was a wonderful answer. He gave the answer because that's what he was already planning to do that afternoon. Uh, he had already been planning to plant an apple tree when he went home. Um, well... <laughs> What's great about the the answer he gives is that not only uh, does he say, is he pointing out that you should be living all the time as though Jesus can show up any time, but what also comes around is that planting an apple tree when you know the world's going to end tomorrow is an act of hopeless optimism. That tree is never going to grow big enough to give fruit. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, it, yeah. Well, I, what did he? What his answer show was that I would still live in hope. I would still have hope. Why? You know, the point. The point oftentimes seems to be that we um, we 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 are. We really get, we're, we're going to cram for our finals now. You know. <laughs> um, you know. I, I have had classes I've fallen behind in. I have occasionally passed by cramming for my finals, but definitely not with the grade I would have gotten if I'd studied right along, <laughs> okay? Um, cramming for our finals is not usually good advice. <laughs> um, so, uh-huh. Same as this. Same as this, exactly. We, we live all the time expecting Jesus to come back. But for those of us who live with faith in Christ, that's a moment of hope. Not a moment to be afraid of. You only get afraid of the final judgment if you're thinking, I'm going to stack up all my good works and this will make me ready for heaven. Well, we already know there's not enough works to stack. (laughs) So we live by grace through faith. Does Jesus have enough works to get us into heaven? Oh, yes. So that's my only hope when I get there, no matter how long I live. (laughs) But what's it? about this one. What if, what if he wouldn't have died, Jesus? What would it be like today now? Good question. Yeah. Who knows? He came to die. He tells well, us yeah, that. Right. He tells us that. Yeah. But what if he wouldn't have died? Do you think it would have changed? 
Who knows? We still have yeah, people you know. selling the what, selling the what do you call indulgences? Indulgences. Yes, they do still yeah. sell indulgences. They don't sell them in quite the same way, but they do. Um, yeah, um, I think one of the realities is that uh, you know once Jesus took on our human nature. He was going to die. Whether it was to die on a cross or die in an old, uh, like dying as an old man in bed, he's going to die. Yeah. Um, which means that he still, God, has to experience death in order for us, in order for our death not to stick, so to speak. <laughs> okay, um, that's a that, that's still a huge thing for him to take on, um, with or without, you know, our sense of things. So, um, this is another passage. I just never thought about all this. <laughs> well, sure. Absolutely. Well, that's what this, having this kind of class brings those things to our mind and helps us focus on them a little bit, you know. Um, this is another passage. This is, uh, this is from uh, Luke 12, 35-40. He um, read, Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning, and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast, so that they may, be open, so that, so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would, have left his, would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So again, he, that same quote about the, the master knowing what time the thief is going to arrive, okay? Um, it's, it's the unexpected thing. But, this is an even more hopeful text than the Matthew text, right? Because here we have, what's going to happen when the master shows up? He's going to dress up like a waiter and serve us. You know, that's, that's a much more significant kind of thing um, uh, to look forward. Again, for us who call Christ Lord, what an amazing thing to look forward to. Mm-hmm. It's not something to be scared of. So, there you go. Luke 12, 35 to 40. Okay, so... so I mentioned this. Futuristic interpreters look for one-to-one correspondence between imagery and historical events. And we want to square things with the whole of Scripture. So that's what we're going to work on doing. And the goal, again, just a a reminder of our very first uh, lecture or or class, the goal of apocalyptic literature is to keep us on our toes. Um, It is. To remind us it's time to be ready. You know, we we sing a mighty fortress is our God, not a comfy mattress is our God. (laughs) You know? (laughs) Um, uh, But it's also to reveal. It's not meant to hide things from us that we're supposed to find the secret code to open up. Okay? So, um, as we head into um, the trumpet plagues, we're going to talk more about that. Okay? We're going to see what's revealed here. So, um... I am taking a liturgical look at this, so I am seeing parallels between this book and what we do in worship. The early church very intentionally structured its worship around the synagogue service and the book of Revelation. Okay, so what we read here, remember this is all, we have this sort of worship service going on in heaven, so it's appropriate to call it a liturgy, just like we call our Sunday morning worship a liturgy. Okay, so this is the order of things. That's, and that's all that word really means, okay? It's the order of things. So, as we begin, let's let's uh, oh, let's jump in. Back into the book of Revelation here.
Are we already past this? Did we already go, already go past this one? What's that? Chapter 12. That's where I had, but... Okay, oh. I had my bookmark in the right place, and I had my lecture notes in the wrong place. So you all can feel... Free to tell me any time that I'm looking at the wrong page. <laughs> I'm not the kind of person who worries much about being corrected. I'd rather get it right. <laughs> so who, for those listening to the... Maybe I'll cut off this beginning part of the podcast because for the, uh, the um, podcast, they, they listen to this. Is they can go class to class to class. Some of the people who can't be here on Thursday nights. So um, I'm headed on chapter 9, chapter 11, chapter 11, chapter, oh come on, see what happens, I get here late, I'm going to keep messing things up, all right, so who would like to read for us at chapter 12? Okay. You don't need to read the whole chapter yet. Yeah, we'll stop. Why don't you read as far as... Uh, why, don't you, why don't you read as far as verse 6? Including? Yes. Mm-hmm. A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven. An enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his head. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the desert to be to a place prepared for her by God, where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. Okay. So, um, what do we immediately start to think of when we see a woman giving birth to a child that God's going to take care of? Must be someone special. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. What else? Somebody special? Mm. Jesus. Mm. Okay. Like Jesus. Yeah. So who would that make the woman? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mary. Yeah, Mary. 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 Mary, exactly. Um, there are two ways of interpreting some of these passages. Um, either one of them is relatively faithful, and especially because the imagery in apocalyptic literature tends to be have multiple layers of meaning. I don't necessarily try to divide them. Um, one of the one of the things would be here would be to see the woman as the people of Israel. Okay. Um, God is pictured in the prophet Isaiah as being married to the people of Israel. Okay, this is his bride. Okay. Um, of course, for us as Christians, seeing birth of a male child who's going to rule with an iron scepter, we think of Jesus and, you know, we think of, of Mary herself. That's also a fa- very faithful way of understanding Mary. In Mary, all the people of Israel come together, right? That she, sort of all their bloodlines lead up to her. And then she gives birth to Jesus, who will be their ruler. Okay, both are perfectly acceptable ways to come at this imagery. Um, 
you know, Luther had a very high respect for Mary. Um, Lutheran churches don't tend to have pictures of Mary floating around, or st- certainly not statues of Mary like Roman Catholic churches did or do. Um, we don't give her a prominent place in our worship services, although she actually doesn't have a prominent place in the worship service of Roman Catholic churches either. They don't really mention her in worship, but she shows up in the, uh, in the private devotions of people a lot. Um, uh, Luther had a high respect for Mary, um, uh, had a lively sort of correspondence with her, if you want to call it that. So as, as a Roman Catholic, he prayed to her all the time. He didn't really give that up when he became Lutheran. Um, <laughs> but he didn't recommend it to other people because he was afraid some people would think of themselves as like, like she was a stand-in for God and he wanted to get people going back to Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just because you're talking to Jesus doesn't mean you can't talk to his mother, but you shouldn't talk to his mother instead of talking to Jesus. You know, and that's what a lot of people in his day and age did. I get that book from her. She, she could zap you, Mary. Mm-hmm. If uh, he got in trouble, or she'd take it out. She'd get the guys to beat on him or whatever and slap him. Okay, I don't know that. I don't know that story. This book, he had Can you a, give it to him? Uh, was in the Bible? Yeah, but this is one of the different, oh, different from, This is uh, Yeah, I, I, I don't remember that no, being in that book. Was, okay. This is one I got from Willard. Okay. Right? Okay. And she was she was tough. I mean, if anybody picked on Jesus, that was, that was no, no. <laughs> As a little, you know, she got him, you know. Oh, yeah, well, mamas can be protective of their babies. <laughs> yeah. anyway, this is something to read. Absolutely. I'd have, to, I'd have to take a look at that. This was, um, who was that? You said we got it from Willard? Willard Workheiser. It was Willard Workheiser, okay. Okay. Yeah, he had a lot of that stuff. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I think of him every week I turn the screens on because they donated those. Yeah. Who oh, did they? Yeah. You know, they, they were getting so they couldn't read the hymnals, so they wanted, yeah. the, they wanted the words up on the screens. And they couldn't lift them. No, oh, that too, they yeah. Was, they're heavy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So, um, so we have this woman giving, giving birth to a, a, a male child. The child is caught up to God, okay? So immediately Christians are going to think of the resurrection. Um, and uh, where Jesus, you know, his ascension to the right hand of God, right? Um, and then, uh, of course, the preparation for time in the wilderness, um, we would think of when uh, Joseph takes the, the child because Herod's killing all the children under two years old and he runs to Egypt to escape and just kind of to escape that imposing, impending death. So um, here we've got a woodcut. Um, this would have been the way all Bibles were illustrated once upon a time. Um, you think about the fact that the... Uh, um, well, the um, what were called illustrated manuscripts were all hand painted. That's why they cost so much money, right? They were like three years' income for a duke to get a to get a Bible. Um, what well, printing press is invented right around the time that Luther gets going, and. Um, how does a printing press work? If you ever go to like Williamsburg or someplace like that, you can see them using them. You know, they set the type and then you ink it up with a pad and you press it down and bring it back up. So the woodcut uh, was was the, how they did the pictures. Um, this is, of course, directly from the Revela- Book of Revelation. We have God up above. Um, we have the Mar- uh, probably Mary and Jesus in, a, in Luther's day. Um, certainly the woman with the crowns on her head and then we have the seven-headed dragon there. Um, just giving a little... Uh, imagery to it. Um, some more modern uh, interpretations. Okay. Um, the one on the left, you particularly get the sense that the woman's giving birth. She definitely looks like she's in pain a little bit there, you know. Um, and then they've they've kind of made the light coming out of where her her womb would be. Um, the, the left hand side one's a more kind of traditional picture, and 
Actually, you can see we see Jesus, or no, John the Baptist down in the corner pointing at Jesus. You can just see the arm of the cross oh. there coming into the picture. Okay. So, um, yeah. Um, it's interesting because we, as, um, as Protestants, as I said, we don't have a lot of room for Mary. Um, but what's interesting is that more and more Protestants of late have been beginning to pay attention to her. Um, her major significance in the early church was that it protected the humanity of Jesus. And it sounds kind of strange because in our day and age, everybody wants to believe Jesus was just another teacher, just another human being teaching. In the, early, in the days of the early church, the culture at large, by and, by and large, if they heard of Jesus, they believed he was a god. But they didn't believe he had a body because for, for Greeks and Romans, matter was a problem. It wasn't for Jews, right? Think about the Jewish creation story. Um, god gets down and plays in the mud and he makes a little man and he... <laughs> breathes into him, you know, and, and then he comes to life, right? Okay, the man becomes a living being. Well, in the Jewish story, God starts with stuff. God bakes a body and then puts the soul in. Well, the Greek account's very different. The soul is the good thing, the body's the bad thing, okay? Um, and so, they actually had a thing they called the Demiurge. Um, that was what had created bodies for us in the Roman or Greek account. Um, especially the Greek, the Greeks, the Romans picked it up from them. So, it was kind of like a bad god. He came along, he was kind of mischievous and created bodies for us. We were supposed to be free-floating spirits with, with no bodies. So, that was, the early church had to prove to people that Jesus actually was a real human being. Um, and so, Mary's significance was that she gave birth to Jesus, okay? She gave him a body. Um, and so her actual official title is Theotokos, which literally means God-bearer, literally the one who carried God in her body for nine months, okay? Um, so as, as our culture becomes increasingly less Christian and we have to explain Christianity and sometimes even defend it against people more and more in our culture, Protestants are beginning to take interest in Mary again because she helps us do that in some important ways. So this was the cover of Christianity Today, um, December 2003. This is one of my favorite paintings of the Annunciation, um, uh, which is, of course, when Gabriel shows up and tells Mary that uh, she's going to have a baby, and she's like, what? (laughs) Are you kidding me? Um, Greatest understatement in Scripture. How can this be? (laughs) I mean, they know how babies were made. Um, This actually actually hangs in the National Gallery, if you ever go down to Washington. It's a beautiful, big, big painting. You feel like you're in the room with Mary. Um, And Gabriel is kind of off of the cover here. Um, he's a column of light. They don't paint Gabriel as a person. He's like a column of light, and that's where you get the light in the room from. Um, you know, most scholars agree that Mary was probably 13, 14 years of age when this happened. Um, so uh, they have her. Portray- I love it because she's portrayed as a as a young girl and scared with her Jewish robes on and stuff. So I love this painting. But anyway, um, Christianity today is kind of the biggest selling evangelical Protestant magazine in in the world, um, monthly kind of thing. And here they put her on the cover. And the guy who wrote that, I believe, was Russell Moore, wrote that article. It's been a long time since I read it. Um, But uh, Russell Moore's a Baptist scholar. So so that he's paying attention to Mary is kind of significant. I can get you that. You can still read it online if it's a, even though it's 15 years old. So, um, but it's it's an interesting article. If you go to ChristianityToday.com and look it up in the archives, it's December 2013. So, 
Um, and I can send you that link if you're interested in it. It just talks about what we can learn from Mary as, as modern-day Protestants. We're not going to look at her the way Catholics do, but we can learn from her. So, um, so that's just something as we start into chapter 12 here. Okay? All right. So as we start into chapter 12, first we have the woman um, with the dragon. Okay? And uh, now we're going to see what happens as we get into verse 7. So who would like to read from verse 7? And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth, and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, now have come to the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of this of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers, who accuses them before our God day and night, has been hurled down. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil is gone down in you. He is filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle, so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the desert, where she would be taken care of for a time times and a half a time, out of the serpent's reach. Then from his mouth the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring. Those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And the dragon stood on the shore of the sea. Okay. So, um, what jumps out at you now? And something I want to say as we enter into uh, chapter 12, um, I got myself a little off by, by picking up the lecture at the wrong place. You know, we had the, the seven seals and the seven trumpets, right? So you have this sort of repetition of seven. Now, um, we're going to see an, a new cycle of seven begin. All right, And from here on out, whereas in all the previous ones, we saw partial judgments. Remember, like, starvation came upon the earth and a third of the earth died. Okay, But two-thirds are still left. <laughs> I mean, everything's kind of partial and provisional. Um, giving time for people to get involved, uh, to, 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 to come to faith and be saved. Um, from here on out, our judgments are going to be complete and final. Okay. Um, 
the seventh trumpet blast at the end of chapter 11 brought that on for us. Okay, It heralds the initiation of God's direct reign of his kingdom and the time for judging the dead, for rewarding serpents, the prophets and saints who and all who fear your name, both small and great, for destroying those who destroy the earth. So God's going to destroy the destroyers. Okay? Um, we, we, make a mis- we make a mistake if we see God as the guy coming in breaking things up. Things are already broken up. Yeah, God's here to set things right by stopping the destruction, okay? Um, um, what we're going to see now is, if you think about the fact that what's, what's one of our central acts of, of worship is um, the remembering of, of, of things, right? So we as Christians always look backward in time to remember what God has done as we look forward to what he promises to do in the future, right? Um, That's always been the case. It was the case for the Jewish people. So what does the Passover meal do? You, You sit together... And it's New Year's Day for you. because Why is it New Year's? Because this was the day God set us free from slavery. So you tell the story again of what God did to free you from slavery. Okay? Um, we do the same thing um, in, in our worship. We, look, we read the scriptures which recount God's mighty deeds of, of activity. And then what's our central act of worship? Holy Communion, right? And then we... You get to hear Bethany sing over the speakers. <laughs> so the angels in the background here. Um, yeah. So we, our, our central act of worship is one of remembrance, right? Do this in remembrance of me, right? So we're looking backward. Um, the reign of God is declared over the whole earth as chapter 11 comes to an end. Um, but this sets the stage for the retelling of the story for the battle between the anti-Trinity and the Trinity. The Holy Trinity, we have God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit on one side, and the Anti-Trinity, which we're going to see up. The dragons just showed up, okay? So we're going to get the, the Anti-Trinity coming in, okay? Um, so we have the portent of the woman, as I mentioned, is, it, is she Israel? Is she, is she Mary? She's, she's both, okay? Um, why does her crown have 12 stars? There's 12 tribes in Israel, okay? <laughs> um, and... As this comes to it, what do we see the dragon doing as chapter 12 comes to an end? He goes off to make war on the rest of her offspring, okay? On, on all those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So, in a sense, this woman in chapter 11 is the mother of all believers, right? She's, she's who they look to. And again, it works whether you think of Mary or, or whether you think of Israel, the people of Israel. Because either way, they have given birth to whether it's Mary or whether it's Israel, they give birth to the Messiah. We look to the Messiah for, for salvation, okay? Um, and Israel, the promises given to Israel are now inherited by the church, okay? That's what we get very clearly in the book of Hebrews. So what Mary did in giving birth to the word is what the church still does through our ministry of word and sacrament, okay? Um, Jesus is not just remembered in our worship service, he comes into our presence in the worship service, even though we don't visibly see him. And we, uh, we journey with him. Um, those who are baptized into, into Christ are new creations, we're told in 2 Corinthians 5.17. We're, we're born anew, okay? Born through the ministries of the church. Um, so um, what we have here... 
1,200, uh, and I, I'm going back a little bit to end up that, that first six verses. 1,262 days, 1,260 days, 42 months is a symbolic period of persecution, okay? Um, it's likely based on the length of time that a particular emperor, Antiochus IV Epiphanes, persecuted Jews from 167 AD to 164 BC. Like, and, and it adds up, because how long do we get here in the middle of chapter 12? Um, we have here in verses, verse 12, excuse me. Um, she flies into the flies from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she's been nourished for a time and the times for a, a time and times and a half a time three and a half right three and a half years is how many months forty two <laughs> okay <laughs> so there's your symbol um, forty two months twelve hundred sixty days recounting the same length of time different ways um, it's a tribulation a time a time of trial and tribulation for the people of God but it's a passing time because it does come to an end okay um, and then we get the war in heaven which is what we see here who's who's leading the who's leading the troops Todd hmm? leads the troops oh nope tells us a little, give, gives us a different name huh go ahead no you said it Michael, I think. Michael, Michael. Yeah, Michael's leading. Michael's leading the troops. Okay, he's the general. Okay, God's the king. But the general's leading the troops, and that's Michael. Okay, that's all right. Um, <laughs> I was thinking. I was off somewhere. I was watching. I like to watch the History Channel. Okay. Now they're saying they found some King Tut's tomb yet. Oh, that's they found some mortal rooms. Goes back farther, but, but kind of involves oh, How cool. Coming. Okay. Unflying uh, objects under those guys coming flying in here. They're tweaking our our bodies. Oh, that's these these old guys that are into that stuff. As archaeologists. Wow. That's supposed to be coming sometime here. Interesting. I'll have to I'll have to see that. You'll have to send me a, what the name of the show is so I can look it up. Ancient aliens. Ancient the, Aliens. Okay, I don't know that one. Never seen the, that one. It's on the History Channel. Okay. They run it. Mm-hmm. Okay, interesting. I've never watched the but Ancient were, Aliens. I wouldn't have had any idea what that would have been. <laughs> <laughs> I would never get that. It's, it's, I don't know. It's like tweaking. There's all these guys that go in the in the tombs. Uh-huh. So uh-huh. They, they put it together. They try to put the pieces together. Yeah. And they're going way back now. Now they found something different in Cut's tomb. They had a different room. Oh, sure. They didn't know from before. And this is going to put more light on the subject. Okay, interesting. Well, all these things are interesting theories. I mean, that's, yeah. the problem is that the, uh, you have all these fragments of evidence. And, and I feel like, some, again, back to the sort of futuristic interpretations, people put all these, put, people put all these clues together in so many different ways, you know, that it, it gets rather confusing, which is why I, I tend to orient around this interpretation that the early church uh, believed in. Because these people were actually, at least, they were much closer to the apostles, even if they weren't directly listening to their preaching, although some of them were directly listening to their preaching. Um, you know, guys like um, oh, he was burned at the stake. Who am I trying to remember his name now? It won't come to me. But anyway, the Apostle John was his pastor growing up. You know, so they did have some of this, you know, kind of thing. And some of these people who were debating and discussing these things. Um, so when we get together in worship and we sing, um, like at the eight o'clock service, um, those. Um, you know, remember we sing holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, that kind of thing. 
Well, there's prayers in there where we say, like, Holy Lord God Almighty, right? Well, the older translation, you may remember it from the Red Book, was Lord God of Sabaoth. Mm-hmm. Okay, it's actually not a translation. Sabaoth is the actual Hebrew word being translated. Lord God Almighty actually is a bit of a step down. Um, it was the 70s, and it was just after the Vietnam War, and everybody was real anxious about war imagery um, because it was such a hot topic so when they put out that green book but actually what it means is Lord God of hosts king of the heavenly armies and here we see the army okay (laughs) Um, it's more than just he's almighty it's not just like generic sort of like power like the force in Star Wars. No, he's in charge of armies of angels. Okay, that, that's who he has at his beck and call. And you have that from Jesus, right, as he's being nailed to the cross. I could at once call all these legions of angels and they could come save me, okay? Um, so that, that language is there. Well, what we see now is the army of God wage war against the serpent and his legions of dark angels. Okay, here's the war that breaks out, okay? Now, Excuse me, did you catch how they're going to win? It says they're, they conquer. It says they're going to conquer. They conquer through what? Verse 11. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. There you go. By the blood of the Lamb and by their testimony. Okay. Now here's what gets interesting. One of the things we do whenever we read scripture is we tend to read into it things that we, from our own experience. So, in certain churches, a big part of either joining the church or keeping the church going on a week-to-week basis is people's testimonies. Lutherans don't do that. We're too bashful to get up and talk about our relationship with Jesus for the most part. But um, those testimonies are very... That can change, absolutely. Well, we're going to have... We've got two people who've approached me about giving a witness in church. But um, your testimony is very important in certain Christian traditions. Well, they tend to read this passage and say... um, you know, we'll see how important this is. How we're we're going to conquer through the blood of the Lamb. We know who that is, Jesus, Lamb of God, and our testimony, which usually means my personal experience with Jesus. That's not at all what the word testimony means here. The testimony is the story, not about Jesus and me. It's the story about what Jesus did in history. So much more like in the book of Acts, when Peter preaches that first big sermon on Pentecost Sunday, he doesn't at all talk about. You know, Jesus and I were walking together one day and I felt this thing or he said this thing to me. Peter does is get up and talk about how he came to Jerusalem, y'all crucified him, now he's risen from the dead. It's what we would call the gospel, okay? (laughs) He doesn't talk about his personal relationship with Jesus. He talks about what Jesus has done for the whole people. This is how the angels wage war. They wage war by telling again the story of the resurrection of Christ and through his blood through his already shed blood. And we already saw this back in the early part of the book. We see a lamb standing as though slain from the foundation of the world. Standing as though he's been slain. Most of the slain lambs I know lie down. Okay. <laughs> um, so this, 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 is, this victorious lamb of God is, is how the army is conquering. All they're doing is telling the story of Jesus and conquering through his blood. Okay, um, so really, who's winning the victory? It's it's the lamb. It's even though the armies are fighting, it's it's the lamb who's winning the victory for them. Okay, um, so this section of scripture is interesting because 
um, you may remember that there's a place in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning. Okay? Um, he basically saying, I was there when this battle happened. But he's telling it before the resurrection. So this part of the book of Revelation traditionally in the church is not interpreted as a future event. It's interpreted as happening before the creation of the world. Because Jesus already saw it happen. Okay? We don't see it in Genesis. It doesn't show up and there's a big war in heaven. But where does Genesis start? It starts with the Spirit of God moved over the face of the waters. Okay, so we're already starting like in the primordial stuff, okay? We're starting on earth. The picture's on earth, so to speak, as God creates. Um, so that doesn't mean nothing was happening before that. It's just that nothing relevant to us is happening before that. We don't see God create the angels in the book of Genesis, but we know they're there because they run around and do things, okay? This is why in our creeds we say, um, we believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things seen and unseen. The book of Genesis focuses on the things we can see, not on the things we can't see. Okay, so traditionally this section of the, of the Bible by the church was interpreted as we're seeing it now. So this is, again, a, an act of remembrance, just like we do in worship. But it's remembering what happened a long time ago, the armies of God casting out Satan from heaven. So where does he end up? On the earth, chasing the woman we've already talked about. Chasing around those who believe in God. <laughs> okay? Can I say that one more time? Sure. Okay. The war we're, the, the battle we're seeing. Genesis on things. Genesis focuses on things see. we, right. Okay, and then what? Um, we don't know, we don't have recounted for us the stories of how the angels were created. We don't know anything about yeah, that. Okay. okay? Um, we know that they exist because they show up all over scripture. God's sending them on errands. You know, they're running around. They're messengers. Um, or, or in this case, they're soldiers. Okay? <laughs> Um, okay. Angels are also soldiers in the book of Joshua. And, okay, you see them quite a few times showing up to fight for God's people in, in, in the book of Joshua. Um, and uh, uh, Gideon, one of the great famous stories of how the angels uh, fight for the people of God. Um, so what we have here is a story that most, throughout most of church history has been, recount, has been thought of as happening way before we show up. But it's just the story's being remembered now. So we're seeing this great drama of salvation being enacted. Okay? Um, so we see Satan cast out of heaven. What does he do? He chases around all the believers. What's happening about the time the book of Revelation is, is written? Probably just before the Gospel of John, if, if, the same, if it is the same author, which I happen to believe. Um, they're, getting, they're getting killed! <laughs> They're, getting, they're in all the middle of these Roman persecutions. They have no doubt at all that Satan is chasing them down and trying to kill them. Because this is happening on a daily basis. A few more Christians are rounded up and executed. Okay? Um, good gracious. Um, Nero literally takes Christians, um, douses them in pitch, and sets them on fire to light his garden party. So everyone else is going around sampling the hors d'oeuvres, and the, and the torches lighting the garden up are Christians or burning, being burned alive. Okay? So the Christians have no doubt at all that Satan is chasing them and running them into the ground, okay? So this makes sense um, of, the, of the experience of the original people here who would have heard the story, and it makes sense of our own experience. More Christians were killed in the last hundred years than were killed in all of the 1900 years before that for their faith, martyred for their faith between, com between communist Russia, communist China, 
um, and the fights between Christians and Islam in the Middle East and Africa. More Christians were killed just because they were Christians in the 20th century than in the 19th centuries before that all combined. Okay? Um, a guy named Paul Marshall is a civil rights activist. Uh, yeah, civil, I should call him a human rights activist, not a civil rights activist, human rights activist out of Canada has done a good job of, of detailing all this work, uh, detailing all those things happening. Yes? Mm. Sorry, I thought you would ask a question. No. no okay. It's a lot to grasp yep. when you're not thinking. And... Yeah, it's... Mm-hmm. Wow. <coughs> I don't have not. <laughs> this went brain dead. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to do this in the evening. Like, we need to do it in the morning when we got the whole day ahead, right? Not after dinner. We're all talk- to Our food comas are setting in, you know? Yeah. <laughs> There you go. There you go. Um, so the, the, any, to, to wrap up chapter 12, because I don't want to start chapter 13. I'll, I'll give you another woodcut. I've got a nice woodcut of, of the angel Gabriel. Um, whenever Gabriel is painted or woodcut or, you know, whatever, there are statues of him, he's almost always pictured as carrying a spear or a sword. And with his one foot on Satan's neck and the weapon ready to... Or, or, or just piercing Satan. Um, St. George is also pictured that way too because that's, that's why you get St. George and the, the, he's the symbol of England because he defeats a dragon. Are so. those pictures in the uh, King James version? Um, well, there's lots of King James versions. These woodcuts were taken out of the German versions of the Bible um, that would have been printed... These ones are probably from the 18th century, so the 1700s. Yeah. 1700s. Um, so, um, but these all these all came out of Lutheran Bibles. Um, all these ones did. Okay. With his foot on on Satan. Yep. So what you see here is you know you see this whole heavenly army up here, right? You've got, whoops, you got all the major things you, you needed with armies, right? You got a shield bearer. So a guy with a sword and a shield, you got a bow and arrow, but here's Gabe, here's Ian, Michael, excuse me, out front tackling Satan directly because he's he's the head of the army, okay? He's leading the charge. Oh yeah, so. I see. Oh, I see. He's upside yeah. down. Yeah, see that? Yeah, the dragon. The dragon's upside down with a with, with, yeah. the dragon's upside down with a with a spear in his throat. Okay, and here we see some other. You know, we see the other the other dark angels that the angels are chasing him down. Okay. And down below, what do you see? A nice German village. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So this is, what's, this is what is meant to portray to us, is that while we're living our sedentary little lives and taking the cows out to pasture and shooing the horses and doing the things that we're doing, and our, uh, this is what's going on in heaven. There's always a spiritual war going on as, as Satan tries to pull you back from God. Yeah. And like I said a couple months ago in a, in a sermon, every baptism is registered in two places: one in heaven, one in hell. And hell just lost a just hell just lost a tenant, and they want him back. Okay, <laughs> so they're warring and trying to pull us back. Um, but we see here we see the angels uh, fighting on our behalf. Um, the woman is given two wings of an eagle. That should put us immediately in mind of um, Psalm 91 or Isaiah 431, um, which of course is that, remember the song, and I will lift you up on eagle's wings. People like to sing that in church, right? That's from Isaiah 40, 40 uh, verse 31, which says you shall mount up on wings like eagles. You shall not, you, you shall not be, um, I should have it by memory, and I don't, it's gone. But basically, you shall not be fatigued. You shall be able to run the race. God will take care of you kind of thing, Okay. 
Um, did you think it was interesting that the dragon breathed water? Yeah. Rather than, rather than, we always think of dragons as breathing fire, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, well, for, for, for um, Jews hearing this, the symbol of primordial chaos is not fire. It's water. Where does, where does the creation story begin? The Spirit of God moved over the face of the waters. All is chaos. And then, what does he say? He starts creating order out of it. Let there be light. Light and dark, first separation. Then, sky and earth and sea. You know, he's, he's making order out of the chaos. If you think of it as just like a big lump of clay, then God starts forming things, you know, and doing things with it, okay? Um, that's not the whole story. God starts creating things by speaking them. Obviously, he's not working with the clay till he gets to Adam. But, um, but just thinking of it as chaos, just a mush, and then all of a sudden you start to see shapes emerging out of it. Um, this makes sense as a symbol for chaos for these people. Why? They're desert dwellers. Jews do not make boats and go all over the Mediterranean like the Greeks do or the Phoenicians did. You know? um, they're, they're desert dwelling people. Um, by the time of Jesus, they are going out on the lakes. If you've ever seen a Jewish fishing boat, it's small. You are not going very far in that thing. This is not, this is not what we would call a seaworthy vessel, okay? Um, so water is a scary thing for a desert-dwelling people. Most people don't learn how to swim, you know? Yeah. You know, that kind of thing. It makes sense as a symbol for chaos. So the, 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 the dragon vomits this water that chases her down, but the earth takes care of it, sucks it up, and, and then she's safe, right? Um, and the, ultimately, the dragon goes off to make war on the rest of her children, which is who? The church. Okay? The church is the rest of her children. And that's what we'll pick up next week, because verse 13, um, we start to see the building of the anti-trinity. We, we see this sort of God's mockery of God, uh, excuse me, Satan's mockery of God, right? God is Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, we're going to see this parody of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as we enter into verse thir- uh, chapter 13. Okay? I don't want to start it this week because it's too good. To, you know, I don't want to break it up. We want to really get into that. So. <laughs> yeah, well...